name is Ezra, and I like my government, like how Toronto likes their condos, big and invasive. And I'm Sarah, and I like my government, like how men prefer women in politics. Seen but not heard. We got a great episode covering Canada's ongoing attempts to pretend it's a place where refugees are welcome, and a place where Indigenous people are afforded fundamental human rights. And we talk about the NDP pretending they are pro-religious freedom, while really just fumbling over each other to sweet-talk Quebec. Stay tuned! Remember after the election, when all of those upper-middle-class Americans and elitist white actors declared from the comfort of their couches that they were going to pick themselves up and move to Canada? It turns out that the Americans who are only really worried about Trump on their Tumblr feeds are staying put, but the ones who worry in real life about Trump are actually making their way over to Canada. If I recall correctly, it was good brother Justin who invited the tired and huddled masses via Twitter to just come on over. He tweeted, To those fleeing persecution, terror, and war, Canadians will welcome you regardless of your faith. Diversity is our strength. Hashtag welcome to Canada. Did he really expect these people to get in line and start filing their immigration paperwork? Well, there aren't any real figures, but at least 10,000 people have walked across the U.S.-Canada border seeking asylum in Canada, the majority walking over since the 2016 election. Doesn't Brother Justin know that these days people tend to take tweets to mean actual policy memos? Good, good Brother Justin. Good Brother Justin. Yeah, well, you know, it's 2017, Good Brother Justin. Political discourse is now one person tweeting an over-exaggerated promise while the exact opposite happens in real life. Right, it's like he was born yesterday. Right, man, man of the modern era, <laughs> no more. Of course, it is very unlikely that one tweet is the main reason why 10,000 plus people are risking their lives to come to Canada. However, according to some news outlets, this tweet seems to have given some people a little bit of confidence. And even in Syria, reportedly, there are people, based on the press Trudeau has tried to give himself, who really believe that Canada is going to come to their rescue. And I hate to hear that what is essentially a throwaway comment to appease progressives at home is so important to people living in hellish war zones. It's like when Coca-Cola announces that they'll recycle more and the entire island nation of the Maldives is like, does that mean we won't be submerged in water? It absolutely does not, Maldives. <laughs> <laughs> need to do a little bit better than that. Yes, <laughs> thousands of people. Well, most of the migrants are Haitians who are settled in the United States under what is called temporary protected status, meaning that they were granted asylum after the devastating 2010 earthquake. Mm -hmm. They now fear that President Trump will cancel the temporary protected status as soon as he finds out that forcing black foreigners out of the country is something he could ostensibly do. At present, he has yet to make a big stink about the Haitian refugees, but everything Donald Trump has ever done might indicate his willingness to simply shut down this program. Luckily, the Trudeau government has been going to full action hero superstar mode. Mm. Yeah, I love when that happens. <laughs> Which, as you might well imagine, consists of lots of validation of mm -hmm. feelings, Snaps. emotional support, and a listening ear crafted by angels. Yeah, it's, 
it's a classic. Sunny ways, as good brother Justin likes to say, but probably not for long as winter fast approaches while these 10,000 people are sitting in tents waiting for that warm Quebecois hospitality to emerge before the first deep freeze of winter sets in. And we all know that Quebec is famous for two things, poutine and gagging at the prospect of guests. My favorite people. Temporary camps have been set up in southern Ontario and Quebec, while many asylum seekers continue to live in the Olympic Stadium in Montreal. But as the millions of Syrian refugees living in temporary camps, and interestingly enough, Olympic stadiums in Greece also, will tell you, temporary camps aren't set up for short-term situations. Right. Essentially, these camps just mean that we, or the country in which these refugees are currently waiting, that they're not entirely sure what to do with you. And there's a, a pretty long list of things that make me uncomfortable, but we'll just start with three. One, <laughs> Olympic stadiums are in such universal disuse. Totally agree. It makes me very uncomfortable as that, well. Yeah, they'll just... Don't worry, there's always the empty billion-dollar uh, stadium that we could just throw people in. Two, the conditions of these camps are unknown and probably not great. Until the press gets in and reports... You know, mudslides, right. widespread misery from the cold and rain. We're just, it's just a crisis waiting to happen. It's a, yes. And three, given that the month of September is upon us, are these tents warm enough? Probably not. And going back to the warm demeanor of their Quebecois hosts. Yes. Unlikely. Yeah. It'll make it a lot colder. Right. Um, so it's a good question because the political solution will come much later than the weather change. Well, don't be too quick to say that. You're forgetting the all-important phase two mm -hmm. to Trudeau's master plan. Mm -hmm. Saying things, but different things uh. than the ones that seem to give people hope that Canada lets you walk right in. Mm -hmm. Trudeau dispatched not one, but two. Two? Two cabinet ministers of his army of cabinet ministers right. to tour these temporary tent camps and border crossings and to, you know, manage the expectations of thousands of asylum seekers who believe themselves to be in the land of welcome mats. But are really kind of just in the land of Chinese head taxes and broken treaties. Right. But let's let's try to stay on topic, shall we? We we can leave we can leave the rabbit hole of democratic founding myths for another day. All right, well, yeah, we'll get back to how we're in the point in our relationship with Haiti where we have to define um, expectations again. <laughs> the two cabinet ministers are public safety and uh, Trudeau fireman Ralph <laughs> Goodell and immigration minister Ahmed Hussein who comes with the added bonus of being Somali. Ah, a win for intersectionality, am I right? Yeah, also because there's a lot of Somali uh, refugees in the camp, and Trudeau remembered again <laughs> that he could send Somali... He could, the best way to preach disappointment <laughs> is to have your own kind do it. Uh, uh, putting on an about face. The main message that they are trying to send is, Hey guys... You can sleep in our tents for now, but we have to tell the rest of Canada that we're trying to kick you out or resettle you based on, you know, whatever the political climate brings. Right. Which basic, which would basically be the liberal, liberal response to any crisis. Meanwhile, Trudeau is trying his very hardest to change the way he talks to non-Canadians. Instead of welcoming, 
he is now saying that there is no advantage to walking across the border and coming in illegally. That tweet is really coming back to haunt him. At the exact same time, the plan is to get temporary work visas to these asylum seekers so that they're not dependent on government support. That course of action is beset by a couple of problems. First of all, two-thirds of the asylum seekers are under the age of 18, who, and as you remember from labor laws, cannot work in Canada. And second, as you might well imagine, whatever job a refugee picks up in a foreign country is in no way conducive to getting off of government support as we have seen with numerous refugee groups over the years. And even people who live in Canada, right? Like Since before Canada was a thing? <laughs> no, well, yes, also them. But, <laughs> no, like, if you, basically, if you're a refugee, okay, so, like, let's say you get to work at Tim Hortons or something, the people in Tim Hortons are not necessarily off of government support. Oh, absolutely. Right? It's you like, can easily be holding down a full-time job at Tim Hortons while still requiring some measure of welfare. Yeah, Absolutely. In terms of concrete solutions, though, there's a limited set of options for our good brother, Justin. Right. The temporary protection status for 50,000 Haitians in the United States expires next January, and it is literally up to Donald Trump to renew the protection. So if I were Haitian, I wouldn't exactly be feeling confident about this entire renewal thing. Yeah, I, I, I've got to agree on that. Also, Haitians aren't the only national group protected by the temporary protected status. 195,000 El Salvadorans are protected until next March. 57,000 Hondurans are protected until January. Their status has been renewed every 6 to 18 months since 1998. Um, except, you know, who knows now. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely uncertain at this point. Yeah, as soon as, right, I, Trump might have already figured out that this is possible, <laughs> hey, when that happens. And the status of Syrians, Yemenis, uh, Nepalese, Nicaraguans are set to expire before next March also. Some of these statuses have been protected for decades because the U.S. government cannot justify sending asylum seekers back to their countries of origin, which are often still recovering from natural disaster and war. I... People from the countries of Guinea and Liberia were protected until May of this year when their status was allowed to expire because it was deemed that the Ebola threat in West Africa had subsided. Canada has already deported about 500 asylum seekers back to the United States, but if statuses expire in the next six to eight months, then deportations could become a moral issue. Right, especially because Haiti is not going to be cleaned up anytime soon. Right. And on top of that, it is interesting to note that so many people are talking about Canada as if it's this perfect progressive utopia with open borders and perfect immigration policies. Canada, like other Western democratic countries, it's a country that deports people. Right. right? All the time. All the time. Yeah. In fact, Canada's immigration policies, one could argue, are probably more restrictive than they are in other countries. With the point system and the extreme selectivity when you look at the countries where the majority of immigrants come from to Canada, I just think, I, I don't necessarily disagree with these policies, but I do think it's a little bit ridiculous how people have become so caught up in this populist fervor around yeah. immigration, Canada, Justin on the cover of Rolling Stone, why can't he be our president? Like, right. be careful what you wish for. Yeah, you know? absolutely. What, you mean to say that the popular mind could be tricked? 
by a nominally handsome drama teacher. Well, no, it's more than just JT, you know? Like, right. this is, this is like, 40 or 50 years in the making of, like, this vision of Canada as this multicultural utopia. Right. It's just completely unfounded right. if you look at the hard facts of our immigration policies. Right. And the fact that, you know, until 1967, you could not immigrate here if you weren't white. Right. right. Well, the, these asylum seekers are allowed to be deported, though, because Canada recognized the United States as a safe third country, mm. making it difficult for asylum seekers to gain entrance into Canada. The NDP wanted to cancel the safe third country agreement, but that would mean that countless refugees within America could claim asylum in Canada. And the problem which I guess when we talk about the problem of refugees coming to Canada, we're really talking about um, having all these refugees who are eligible for social benefits and are also homeless, mm -hmm. won't exactly be solved unless there's a sizable increase in resources. Right, which is probably going to cause a lot of backlash should this scenario play out. Okay, yeah. Um, a possibility which seems unlikely given the fact that many of these migrants are showing up in Quebec, a province that doesn't even want to offer bus services to women who cover their faces, let alone welfare checks to asylum seekers. There's also a call from the conservative side to use heavier policing tactics on the world's largest border. They want to increase the number of official ports of entry which would allow border control to turn back migrants at the border. But this, of course, would turn pretty quickly into a cat and mouse game as border entry points are set up and taken down across the country continuously forever. When people see these weird and oddly endearing pictures of RCMP officers helping migrants cross the border, it makes it seem like Canada is this warm and welcoming place where the police officers are there just to be good Samaritans. But in reality, it's really because it is somehow cheaper and less disruptive to have refugees enter illegally under full police supervision than it would be to have them sneak around to other points of entry, like we mentioned, this cat and mouse game. That said, I think a lot of conservatives could make a pretty good case for, um, for stronger border patrols. Uh -huh. um, I think that there is a middle ground between what we're doing right now and how we see um, different border crises unfolding on the American border with Mexico. Mm -hmm. I think there is a middle ground. I do think that our border needs to be a, a bit more heavily patrolled. But that said, um, I don't think Canada's going into this as blindly or as I'm thinking or with such open arms as people like to tell themselves right. when they pat themselves on the back. Right, absolutely. I mean, I would be hesitant to put more resources into a safe border when there's, I think that there's other more pressing things, but yeah, which is why, you know, like when that's what conservatives want to spend their money on, that's when I get a little like, come on guys, like there's other things, but, um, but if this wave of asylum seekers actually turns out to be a much more pressing political issue uh -huh. than it looks like right now, we might have no choice but to put more resources towards the border. Right. Because... Depending on what, like, they actually decide to do right. with the migrants once they get to right. Canada. I just don't see this as a sustainable process going forward. Right. Well, so migrants use illegal points of entry because it's basically a loophole in the Safe Their Country Agreement. Um, because if you enter a fourth country like Canada illegally from a safe third country, mm -hmm. you're not deported until your case is heard. So the Canadian government has hired more staff 
to, um, you know, to hear the cases of uh, migrants, but it'll take, it'll still take much, it'll still take much longer to complete this process than the temporary protected status will allow. In Trudeau's defense, there is no real good way to solve this issue without putting more money into refugee aid or heavy-duty policing. It hurts me to say, but um, this is a pretty serious issue, and like we're seeing in the United States, immigration crises, and especially seeing in Europe, there's no good solution. Right. Um, I do think that we're going to have to turn to the United States. Trudeau is really going to have to make that move, which might be difficult considering how him and Trump do not really get along that well, especially uh -huh. um, when it comes to NAFTA. But when it comes to this immigration crisis, I think they're going to have to work hand-in-hand -hand with the United States to find some sort of sustainable right. solution. It's also, it's not a crisis right now. It's not a crisis right now. It's not a crisis right now. Don't want to be a conservative alarmist here. Right. No, no, no. Right. Not trying to fan the flames. Not so. trying to fan the flames. But I would like politicians to take this a little bit more seriously. I don't think we're seeing sure. this in, in the news enough. Right. And ultimately, this is taxpayers' money that we're talking about. Right? Uh -huh. Hardworking Canadians deserve to know how their money is being spent in regards to outside groups entering the country. And I don't necessarily mean that um, in a negative way. Right? right? Conservatives should be pro-immigration because immigrants make this country better in all aspects. That being said, taxpayers should have a say in absorbing and how Canada chooses to, to absorb these immigrants and how they choose to, to navigate issues of mass migration. Right. I mean, like if Canada wants to have some sort of their own temporary protected status, that's one thing, mm -hmm. but it looks like, right, they're just sort of waiting for exactly. people to come and, um, waiting to see how it yeah, unfolds in the United States. I have them live in camp, like intent. It's just like it's right. such. It's a not a sustainable solution. Right. It's never. All. It's also never a good idea to just wait, sort of like sitting ducks, until your highly volatile right. um, colleague to the south, right. your contemporary, makes some sort of snap decision that could have some serious ramifications. We'll feel those reverberations in Canada. Right. I also just I hate to see all these people walk across the border, uh, become sort of like this pawn and like this political back and forth mm -hmm. where um they were because they're risking their life their lives to come in they're then used by the liberals to prove how welcoming we are and then used by like um like the more extreme elements of the right wing as proof that ca canadian society is falling apart Right, right. Whenever we have, whenever you, especially in today's political climate, whenever you have some sort of mass movement of peoples yeah. across borders, it just becomes this like hot topic, this, this, this sort of like flashpoint issue between partisan groups that don't necessarily reflect the moderate bases of either party. But I also would hesitate to say um, life-threatening journey. I mean, right now, the way right, it is Right, well, in is the that summer, it's not as bad. In the summer, it's not life-threatening, especially when you have police patrolling looking to safely bring people over, even if right. it's not for the long term. What they want to do is like make right. this America and, by extension, Haiti's problem. Right. Yeah. So even though we're cushioning it with this um, smile on our face, helping yeah. young children over the border, we're just, I mean, I think the liberal government is probably setting themselves up for some sort of PR failure. 
Um, oh no. Which, um, right. really is bad news for everyone. Yeah. Because everyone comes out looking villainized when the liberals try to backpedal on their non progressive policies. On Monday, Justin Trudeau's government shuffled the cabinet and gave out some new minister responsibilities. Ooh. Yeah, I know. Um, giving people new jobs in the cabinet is usually the most exciting way to fulfill the least amount of promises. Perfect. But there have been some actual interesting changes this time around. Because they split the Minister of Indigenous Affairs into two separate portfolios, which, you know... Is a bureaucratic move sure to inspire hope in Canada's long-suffering Indigenous population? Mm, and two women, two women leading them. Yes. You know? Yeah, I know. He's really, he gets to double down. Yeah, double dip. Uh, I, if you will. If you will, in the right to to borrow bottomless some, pit of intersectional combinations. Well, right to double dip to borrow a much used conservative term. With good reason. Debatable. Canada was, as per usual, called out by the United Nations on Monday for, you know, failing to, failing to provide safe housing, water, food to Indigenous people. You know, a routine call out. Right. Carolyn Bennett, the former Minister of Indigenous Affairs, is now the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations. And Jade, bring on the pot, fill pot, <laughs> is the new Minister of Indigenous, of Indigenous Services. Yeah, I just... Crown Indigenous Relations sounds right. a bit contrived to me, and Indigenous Services sounds contrived. Well, are, it, are they services you are providing? Are, is it services that the Indigenous provide to the Canadian people? Is it oh, services made up by this new minister that will not that will not come to fruition? Well, if you could imagine it, and I know this might be hard to believe, but... I don't actually think that there are that many services provided to Indigenous people currently. Well, Lots of money that doesn't go to the right places, but yes. not pragmatic services, we could probably agree. Yeah, well, definitely not services that are making anyone's lives better. Right. That much is clear. Right. Um, so, Jane Philpott is actually the former health minister who somehow got the provinces to sign a healthcare deal that actually made Stephen Harper look generous. Yeah, it was like a much more conservative deal than Stephen Harper would ever be comfortable <laughs> floating <laughs> to the provinces. Um, she also somehow got physician-assisted suicide into real legislation that doctors have to follow, despite the widespread opposition from said doctors, and more importantly, despite Elbowgate. She was Elbowgate? No, she wasn't Elbowgate, but it's like Trudeau. Oh, no, that was Ruth Ellen Rousseau. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was also like, one would think that after Elbowgate, the most riveting political scandal in Canadian history, <laughs> that Trudeau wouldn't have been able to give physician-assisted suicide across, but bring on, bring on Jane Philpott. Yeah. Um, still, I believe, one of the most corrupt and perverted pieces of legislation ever... Passed right. in the Canadian legislature. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get, we can get down for, that for another episode. <laughs> yes. Oh, um, and you know, even though he elbowed a female MP, Ruth Ellen Brousseau, as we previously mentioned, Trudeau lost none of his popularity, uh, probably because he used his perfect 10 bod. If he used his mind we in Elbowgate, we might not have seen the same results. Ugh. 
Sick burn. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, say what you will about the things Dr. Philpott has passed. I say bad things. She has been a godsend for liberals because she is a closet conservative <laughs> and has some pragmatic ideas. Whoa. Ooh. <laughs> I don't actually disagree. Actually, I think that her biggest problem is that, like, before she was in government, she saw herself as someone who could, like, who's going to fight for change. But when she got into government... Wait, government can't this. really affect change? <laughs> right. She's like, whoa, there's systemic barriers. I want to even touch with a 10 foot pole. <laughs> What? But she now finds herself working on indigenous services. services. Right, yeah. She's, she's she's in for a wild surprise. Yes, exactly, of government inaction. <laughs> she's now responsible for ensuring that education, child services, healthcare, and water safety are doing better on indigenous reserves than they have been since any point since the year 1491. But it was for her, it was between sticking around to the Ministry of Health long enough to legalize marijuana, or you know trying to solve the least solvable issues in Canadian history. So I guess that's a, that's a, hard, that's a rock in a hard place right there. Really. Um, but to be fair, Indigenous services are so poor because they have never been a priority or even in the backs of the minds of Canadian governments. Um, so perhaps this is Trudeau signaling that things are going to change. But probably not. But probably not. And the point of giving Bennett her new position, but besides the fact that she was caught in the impossible position of being, of both being in the Ministry of Indigenous Affairs and trying to make a difference. Mutually exclusive. Mutually exclusive. Is that she is now able to focus on just the treaties and inquiries part of her job. So she has a pretty smooth road ahead of her. Oh yeah, absolutely. (sighs) Not that she was too good at that part. Um, Bennett is getting her new position because the inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women was moving too slowly. For reference, that inquiry looks into why there are so many missing and murdered Indigenous women whose murder cases go unresolved and whose murders are not counted as such. Uh, Because the police have been protecting white people from Aboriginals for so long, they forgot that that's only part of their job now. Trudeau said that Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada, which is the agency that governs Indigenous services and land claims, has been colonial and chauvinistic in the past. Which is kind of an understatement. As it has also been murderous and abusive in the past as well. But don't worry. To stop the agency from being too chauvinistic, there's not one, but two white people on the Indigenous Affairs portfolio. From what I could remember, Indigenous Affairs only gets better the more white people are in charge. Mm. Correlation. Okay. There are also eight liberal indigenous MPs, including Jody Wilson-Raybould, the former chief of the Assembly of First Nations, who could probably handle a ministry job and has a little bit more skin in the game than, say, Jane Philpott. It's unclear why an indigenous MP isn't the one in charge of making sure that indigenous people receive services. But hey, I guess where would the learning opportunity for Jane Philpott be if that happens? It's all about the learning curve. Yes. Trudeau has emphasized that Bennett's job will be to move past the Indian Act, which is apparently the chauvinistic law that has governed Crown Indigenous relations, basically since Confederation. Abolishing the Act would mean opening the doors for thousands of Indigenous people to receive government benefits and gain treaty rights, as we spoke about in a previous podcast. 
Trudeau also wants Bennett to negotiate new land treaty deals, which have basically been repressed since the 1800s. Again, cabinet shuffles are an easy way to create positive press without doing too much, but taking a step to split Indigenous affairs into a number of different portfolios is actually pretty positive. Because just how the rest of Canada isn't governed by a single Minister of Canadian Affairs, Indigenous people need dedicated ministries to be responsible for their vast needs. Previous plans to improve the lives of Indigenous people have been interrupted by Canada's refusal to commit resources or give self-rule to Indigenous people. And a controversial point, I don't necessarily know if I agree because no, I, know, just I don't necessarily have a set idea as to how to solve a lot of the Well, no, but I think that refusal people. to commit resources is at least oh, absolutely. a part, especially if you're looking at it from the perspective of the government. A lot of their own efforts have been hampered by the fact that they're not really willing to commit as much um, resources as their promises warrant. Right. But the issue of self-rule to Indigenous people, as it's wrapped up in the um, in the presentation of resources, yeah. tends to be pretty problematic because different provinces have different rules. The government tends to either approach it in an inappropriate way right. or not approach it at all. Right. I think what really needs to be done is there needs to be really an overhaul. And I think there needs to be a yeah. serious breakdown of where the resources are coming from and where the resources yeah, are Yeah, that's going. what they're trying to do. They're trying to, they're trying to do it on a nation-to-nation -nation basis, which um, basically means that they're going to take the, um, the chance that the Indigenous people had to negotiate collectively and sort of try to break it down into sections. Um, you know, which is problematic in itself. Problematic in itself and just invites some serious bureaucratic yes. lockdowns. Yes, I would agree. I think that, like, the piece about granting self-rule is that you want Indigenous people, ideally, in order to, like, um, give them the freedom that they expect, they have to have some sort of control over what is be the resources that are within their uh, negotiated territories. What, um, but, but at the end still, of the day, you I still need to extract it. Right, and I think you also still want to ensure that Indigenous peoples can participate in and reap the benefits of living in a right. democratic country. Right, absolutely. And right now, um, not only are the resources not being allocated properly, and we're not seeing any sort uh -huh. of positive outcome from these resources. We are also seeing so many indigenous people seeped in poverty, experiencing right. violence, and they are not able to participate in and or reap the benefits of living in a democratic right. society. And also many of them aren't living on native reserves anyways. So it's like right. half are living in earth, which is like, if you're only gonna look at it from a, um, how we deal with the people on reserves where we have oil or whatever else we need from the ground, right? That's sort of like a limited understanding because right. Uh, first of all, there's people living on reserves that aren't be like beneficial to Canada from a resource perspective, and then there's also people living um, in urban areas. Right, but it doesn't matter where you're living. Every person right. in Canada deserves to have the chance sure. to reap the benefits of living in a democratic, liberal country. Yeah. And unfortunately, it seems like Indigenous people on reserves have been suffering 
greatly right. and are not able to reap the benefits. And it can be argued that indigenous people living in urban areas do face a certain level of discrimination that prevents them from participating right. in and reaping the benefits of living in a democratic Right, society. even if their houses are, like, somewhat in better repair right. than right. the people or on Right, or they're not living on a reserve, so they're not necessarily living in isolation. Right. But certain institutional forms of racism continue yes. to persist. So the question of indigenous self-rule, I think, remains controversial, and we're not going to see a solution anytime soon. Uh-huh. But with a split ministry there is a chance that more attention will be given to the proper allocation and creation of programs that could at least help, I think, women and children continue to be really at risk like we can't imagine Mm -hmm. on these, especially on reserves or isolation. And I mean, that would especially be the case if there's an actual plan that they just want Philpott to execute. Mm -hmm. But like... I also have a roving suspicion that there is no plan. There's never a plan. Right. But, like, you know, because, like, the stuff she's been able to do have been, like, she was basically given a task mm-hmm. and was, like, okay, you have to get this done. She's gotten it done, mm-hmm. essentially, every time, like, in the way that the liberals wanted it. But well, here, I don't know, like, what their game plan is because, like, they haven't really been going the full let's say, like, truth and reconciliation report route or, like, the full, like, really anything in Honestly, terms of indigenous at affairs. this point, I would give her the benefit of the doubt. Okay. I don't think she belongs to the right party, and I don't okay. think that party has such a great record. I, I disagree. I think she's definitely a liberal. She's definitely a liberal, but I dislike her party. But that okay. doesn't mean that she can't necessarily affect a certain amount of change that yeah. thus far the party right. has refused and, to sort of attempt. Right, and she's also, like, been praised for, like, turning, a, like, increasing morale in Health Canada. So maybe I, I would venture to say that Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada is not, <laughs> right, they're not, like, they're not, you know, exactly high on themselves right now. Mm-hmm. Maybe even that would be good, but you know, who knows? I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. Or, or not. Anyone who was following the NDP leadership race was treated to an all-French debate in Montreal where a cringeworthy display of pandering took place, as per usage. As, as is the custom in leadership debates. <sighs> One after another, these leadership hopefuls, except for Jagmeet Singh, actually, sold their values for votes in a sell-off whose rapid pace was probably only matched by Wall Street investors after realizing that no one in America can afford a mortgage. Basically, as the classic story goes, the NDP won 59 seats in Quebec in 2011 and became the official opposition for the first time in their history, with plenty of thanks to the late... Jack Layton. And then the conservatives realized that Quebec really hates it when women wear burqas, which is a garment that some Muslim women wear, which covers their hair and face. Right. And we should also use this opportunity to distinguish between the burqa and the niqab. Mm. The burqa is one piece that okay. a long robe that covers the entire face and reaches about the ankle with that sort of mesh panel over the face. Yeah. And the niqab is a piece of fabric that ties over the nose, under the eyes, over a hijab, often paired with an abaya, which is a long flowing robe. Right, but in the popular debate over uh, Muslim face coverings, the term burqa... Tends uh, to be thrown around more often. Because of its fun alliteration with burqa ban. 
Right. And the conservatives reminded the entire province that in the complicated and opportunistic moral calculus that every party accesses, conservatives are somehow against what could be construed as a Muslim woman's right to practice freedom of religion. And they support, in this case, a heavy-handed government measure to ban a religious article. Right. And as a conservative, I do find, I, I did find and I continue to find this quote-unquote quote ban to be highly problematic and surprising when you consider that a conservative group is not following the party line, that firm party line of religious freedom. Right. Um, but to continue on that point, while the NDP are somehow in support of a practice, which in some cases is an attempt to oppress women and also precludes their participation in society, while somehow wanting the Canadian government to withdraw from their role in promoting a particular brand of feminism in Canada. So right. it's a little bit confusing where the NDP are going to stand on this issue of the burqa. Right, especially because the NDP never shy away from telling people exactly how to be feminist. Oh, absolutely. But now they're like, oh, no, but it's in Quebec, so, like... So, in Quebec, other rules apply. Yes, exactly. It's a wild west out there. Right. Uh, um, but either way, all four of the leadership candidates are walking a very thin line trying to pacify Quebec when it comes to their serious reservations regarding the burqa while not trying to sound completely Islamophobic. But... They're not doing a great job. They're not doing a great job. Even Nikki Ashton, the pregnant wonder and a self-proclaimed champion of human rights and religious freedoms, said that Quebec has an emerging consensus on secularism and the decision to ban the burqa must be respected. It should be noted, though, that by emerging consensus on secularism, Quebec really means that there is an emerging consensus on being super uncomfortable around and sometimes violent towards Muslims. Guy Caron, as he's known, oh yes, uh, also running for the leadership, says that he personally disagrees with the decision to ban burqas, but, you know, respects the province's space to make their own decisions. This apparently is part of his grand plan to modernize the NDP's stance on Quebec. Really a problematic statement, in my opinion, because if Quebec had banned abortion, I don't think he would say personally disagree, yes. but will respect the choice. Right, it's just because this one happens to do with Muslims, right. like he's allowing himself to disagree with it. Right, there's a certain double standard, and um, it really is problematic. Mm -hmm. Especially, and like, once you get into the entire, that's just like, talking about Muslims, once you get into the territory of talking about like, oh, well, the government feels comfortable deciding how women could dress... Isn't that, like, their tagline? Yeah. Like, it's not up to the government how you feel comfortable dressing. Yeah, exactly. It's just so antithetical to everything the NDP have been saying since 2011. Now, that whole t that whole tagline, comfortable how you feel and what you wear, kind of overused and I think not, not great when we're discussing the burqa because I think we need to discuss it a little bit more seriously. I do not think that the burqa is, or the niqab is something that should be encouraged. I don't think that it's something that we should celebrate, but I believe that religious freedom in a liberal democratic society is absolutely paramount. We don't have to celebrate the burqa, right? Like a lot of progressives take on this whole, a woman can choose what she wants to wear and everything is beautiful. I, I really w refuse to take that stance on the burqa, but it seems very problematic to me that the NDP are 
putting to appease Quebec, a very problematic province in and of itself, to appease Quebec on this troubling anti-religious ruling. Right. I I think that like when it comes to the burqa, which is I, in like a controversial um, article of clothing, I think that like I'm like I'm uncomfortable having the debate for another culture uh, or not really another like for another like people but like how we think that they should be dressing especially when that conversation could lead to actual policy changes but at the same time like that sort of assumes that everyone who wears a burqa gets to choose whether or not they're wearing a burqa Mm -hmm. and i'm not entirely convinced that that's the case Um, i'm not convinced at all right and like at the exact maybe it's getting better maybe it's not honestly i have no frame of reference for Mm -hmm. that but, um, like, at the exact same time, like, op- allowing the government to dictate dress and um, what you're allowed to do, like, how you're allowed to practice, practice your religion slash uh, express your culture is a very dangerous thing to let the government do. It's problematic all the way around. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it sort of throws into relief how problematic and... I don't know, I guess this contradiction is really coming out within the NDP, and I think that it's it's sort of instrumental to why the NDP tends to be very dysfunctional. Right, right? I would agree. That they're willing to compromise certain values to chase after those votes, right. because they it, for the NDP it's always a numbers game. Right, yes. I think like we've definitely seen the NDP abandon a lot of their core values over the last few years and I think it has a lot to do with as labor becomes sort of a less powerful force in Canada and within the NDP party itself that sort of opens the door for the NDP to wonder about their identity it's all it's really becoming all about identity politics yes which is very corrosive and highly problematic yeah highly problematic and sort of playing into I would argue though that um that other parties are not doing a very good job of controlling the identity politics debate because it's so, so useful for their ends. Mm-hmm. You know, like in, in America, we sort of see like what the problematic things that could happen when you start to define, you know, like the dem- like you ba- you could barely be a Republican if you're black, for example, right? And that's because like there's been like the way that both those, uh, the Republicans and the Democrats have sort of talked about race and like, they've created sort of this environment where you have to choose a side based on your race almost. And mm-hmm. in Canada, that's not the case at all. Like you could, um, you could yeah. be any race, vote for any party. Right. I we mean, don't, we don't, we don't really see, I mean, right. there, are exceptions there are exceptions. Days. You don't see that stark right. partisanship um, along racial lines. Right. If, right. It, even among like immigration status, anything, which is right. a good thing, like, cause that's not really Definitely. what should be the debate. But, but like, this yes. is showing that there yes. are definitely cracks in that. Yes, in that and I, I would worry that, like, I think that the conservatives tend to, like, weaponize this particular debate and try and use, like, fear tactics, especially in Quebec, to be like, um, I do we don't want... we need to distinguish between Quebec conservative politics and maybe Ontario conservative no, politics. No, but it's all not on the provincial level. I'm talking on the federal I'm level. I'm talking on the federal level as okay. well. I do think that there is a difference um, between the Quebec conservative policies right, and the Right, because I, I wouldn't argue... 
uh-huh. establishing conservative policies. Right. Like, I wouldn't argue for, like, I don't think that, like, I mean, I know that Muslims vote conservative, but, like, I worry sometimes that, um, given how, I'm not even talking about, like, Ontario versus Quebec. I'm talking, like, greater Toronto area and probably, like, other suburban, like, suburban Vancouver mm-hmm. conservatives versus, like, Alberta conservatives and, like, other um, rural, and then once you get into Quebec, even, like, urban right. conservatives I, that I are getting into is. this, like, sort of, like, allowing people who have extreme ideas dictate um, like the grassroots of the party. Right, but that said, there's just been a serious leadership turnover. Right. Um, I don't think that those divisions are really um, are really playing a huge role right now. Um, uh-huh. I think we have yet to see where those divisions are going yeah. to take us, but I'm optimistic. Okay, yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't know. The thing is, is that, like, I would be okay. Like, I would think that Andrew Shear, for example would try to play down this entire thing. Mm-hmm. But his entire, like, weird obsession with free speech on college campuses makes me a little worried because a big part of the free speech stuff is, like, how we're allowed to talk about Muslims and, like, whether or not um, you could... Whether or not, like, Muslims are allowed to dress in a, a certain way. And, like, this entire thing with the burqa, especially when you consider that a lot of women are told by, like, their fathers to dress in a certain way... Like, part of the free speech debate is about um, whether or not you are allowed to tell Muslim women to not wear burqas. That's a part of it, but I'm seeing a lot of issues sort of, like, thrown together here. Okay. I think that from an establishment conservative point of view, like my own, Uh free speech on campus does not necessarily have an effect on our on a government stance on religious freedom uh-huh. i don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing for us to really be pushing for free speech on campus because it's, a, it's become a serious problem the lack of free speech on campus especially where, conser- where, where conservatives are concerned that okay. said i would hold my party or my government I would hold that responsibility to them in terms of religious freedom. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily see the two things overlapping. Uh-huh. Right. But I don't think, I think Andrew Shear would be okay with people saying offensive things about all kinds of minority groups on campus. Sure. It means that anyone can say anything. But I do think that he would fight for religious freedom right. as the leader of a party. I right. I, I just, know, I just think, right, but I just think that like once you... Like, once you allow, like, because, like, the, the way people talk about Muslims is, like, a big part of the reason why there's a perceived lack of uh, free speech on campus. And uh, I think that once you allow one... the other way around? Um, I think that, well, no, I think that, like, the debate about Muslims in general is part of it, right? Like, um, but, like, I, I don't think that, like, once you allow anything to be said about Muslims like I don't see you coming to their defense from a religious Look, freedom standpoint. There's a really big difference between free speech and hate speech. Right. Hate speech is not allowed but free speech is. Right. That distinction remains 
Right. And I'm willing to defend free speech and religious freedom. Uh-huh. I understand that these biases exist right. and that they color the conversation, but I'm firmly going to stand right. my ground on this one, right. that I will promote a woman's right to wear a burqa uh-huh. and also promote a college student's right to say that he thinks that sure. wearing a burqa is backwards. Sure. And he can shout it from the rooftops as long as he's not promoting violence against those who wear burqas. Right. Fine line, I will admit, but I think that as someone who believes... It is possible. In, it is possible because I believe in the civic religion in Canada, and that is civic engagement and a civic duty to one's neighbors. I think that's an inherently conservative and an inherently liberal idea, I would like to uh-huh. think. Um, I'm going to stand my ground on that one because I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. But okay. if we go back to this conversation about the mess of the NDP leadership race... We also have Charlie Angus. Vis-a-vis from, Quebec. Vis-a-vis Quebec. We also have Charlie Angus um, on the stage. He was famously excommunicated by his church for being in favor of gay marriage. Um, he says that he thinks there should be a separation of church and state, but he thinks that politicians should sit this debate out, the debate about the burqa, and let the courts decide well, what a woman should wear, which, again, is pretty ironic given, given his record. Yeah, and he believes in fighting for what you believe in, but only if that thing isn't controversial in Quebec, right? It's just hard to see what the revolutionary spirit of the NDP is right now. Like, revolution, revolution, except right. in Quebec. Except in Quebec, uh, right. where, right, right. Only, where the only revolution they want there is the quiet revolution, <laughs> perhaps. Um, Jagmeet Singh is probably the only NDP candidate who is consistent on this topic, and it's probably because banning the burqa opens the door to banning the turban, which he wears. I don't necessarily think, I, I agree, I, I do like Jagmeet, and I think that, um, I, I appreciate his stance, but I think that's sort of like on the left kind of alarmist. I think there's a serious difference between the burqa and the turban. Just like I would argue there's a serious difference between a hijab and a burqa. Uh-huh. But that's that's sort of... Right, but I mean, it just, it's just hard to throw yourself behind a cause. Obviously, that, I, would understand, right. I would understand where he's coming from, but I think I would appreciate his stance more if he just made this a religious freedom issue and less of an identity politics issue. Like, sure. I wear a turban, therefore you should wear a burqa. I don't wear a burqa, I don't wear a turban, I don't wear a hijab, but it is your religious freedom to do so. Uh-huh. Regardless of your identity, regardless of what you look like, regardless of your country of origin if you're an immigrant. Right. Because oh, religious freedom right. is something that transcends identity. He's using a, he's using identity as a means of promoting this stance, which I don't like so much. Okay, well, Singh also probably doesn't... He could say this because he doesn't really pull very well in Quebec. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'd imagine he doesn't pull. Right. And I say that fully hoping that Quebec is not as racist as we think it is. But um, likely he wouldn't do so well in Quebec. Right. Um, he is rightfully confused by his opponent's responses, especially after current NDP leader Thomas Mulcair came out guns of blazing against the Burqa ban in the 2015 federal election, again pointing to this undercurrent of dysfunction, of confusion, of contradiction that right. I think runs in the um, New Democratic Party. Yes. Um, yeah, and like the, the NDP also feel that Jack Layden literally died so that Quebec would turn NDP. And they're saying, don't you dare mess this up, Jack Mead. Well, I like Jack Mead. I think he's standing for something. I like him too. Um, He's standing for something that I actually agree with, even though I fundamentally disagree with a lot of 
also uh, this platform, but um, I think that I think that going into this leadership race, um, young people in the NDP, I think I think it's I think it's troubling because I think young people have a responsibility to choose their leader, but this kind of rhetoric is confusing because they want to be able to go out and say that we are going to vote in a progressive leader, but either they're going to be in denial of what these leaders are saying of Quebec, right. or they're going to call out their leaders and maybe go after someone more like Jack Dean. Yeah. So, I guess we shall wait and see. We shall. Alright, that's all for News in the North this week. It's been a great episode. Yeah, a time and a half. Time and a half. Yes, stay tuned until the next one. The next one. Don't want to make outlandish promises like saying next week. <laughs> Don't want to make outlandish promises.